Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In the vicinity of 2 p.m. yesterday, my team came to me and said, who's the one person you want to talk to that actually understands the fear out there in retail portfolios, in people's portfolios. She is, of course, with Charles Schwab. Uh, Lizanne Saunders has been here before, and we're thrilled that Ms. Saunders could join us uh, this morning. Lizanne, you've seen this before. What do you do the day after? So we what we tend to do actually the day of at the close is is put out a, a broad communication about our perspective on what happened in, during that particular day, but also reinforcing uh, some of the longer term perspectives. And Tom, as you know, we started to get a bit more cautious about two years ago, and from a tactical asset allocation perspective, went to <laughs> neutral across the equity asset classes, including U.S. equities, uh, within which we said you wanted to focus on large caps at the expense of of small caps, and we've had a pretty defensive uh, sector positioning as well. So we've had a message out there that this is late cycle, that there are risks. You don't want to get out over your skis. Yeah. You don't want to sell everything and run <clears throat> for the hills, but this is not uh, the time to take undue levels of risk relative to your long-term strategic allocation. So I think we, we positioned our investors for this type of market volatility, and uh, hopefully they, they stay disciplined and, and calm through this. Lizanne, John Templeton was one of the great original global investors. I remember the evening he and Lou Rukeyser went at it, at it in the crisis of 87. Give us an update on your view on the global investment world. Do you have to stay U.S.-centric? Um, not necessarily. We think actually correlations across asset classes and even within asset classes have been generally coming down. I think we've exited this uh, environment where all risk assets perform generally the same and all lower risk assets perform generally the same. So with a breakdown of correlations, diversification actually may start to pay some rewards. And that's been our message. We're neutral, though, across emerging markets, developed markets, U.S. market. But that means you want to have diversification across those uh, those areas. You know, we do have, obviously, a weak global growth story. We've got some records that have been broken 15 consecutive months of, of a declining global PMI. I think it's pretty definitive that we're in a global manufacturing recession, if not an overall global recession, which it looks increasingly likely the U.S. will fall into that trap as well, more so on the manufacturing side, maybe not across the uh, spectrum in the economy, but the risk has clearly risen with, with what's going on with trade. Um, Lizanne, what, what, me, what does this mean for bond yields across the board? Are they going to go further into negative territory, or is it just lower for longer? Well, I, let's hope that in the U.S. we don't go into negative territory. You've got uh, about 13 and change trillion dollars of negative yielding bonds globally, and there's been some chatter that the U.S. would consider that. I don't think there's really any place where central bankers have experimented with negative yields that have ultimately been the elixir for what ails them, and I don't think it would be the case here. So we're certainly hopeful that we don't have to head down that uh, path. Uh, in the meantime, though, you're looking at you know, multi-year lows in the 10-year. The we're not back down near where we were three years ago in 2016 when I think the 10-year bottomed at 1.35. But the fact that bond yields have continued to sink has kept the yield curve inverted, even with the Fed's rate cut from, uh, from last week. 
All right, thank you so much for joining us. Lizanne Saunders there, Charles Schwab, Chief Investment Strategist. John, he's, he's esteemed with a wonderful history at Goldman Sachs and now working for the most interesting institute of international finance, yeah, Mr. Brooks. Yeah, he is the chief economist over there now. Robin Brooks joins us now. Robin, fantastic to have you with us on Bloomberg Surveillance. Let's just start with the Treasury designating China a currency manipulator. The significance of that or not, your thoughts, Robin? Well, thanks so much for having me on. Obviously, it's a pretty big step. Um, by many uh, measures, China is in the past or has been in the past a currency manipulator. On average, between 2006 and uh, 2014, China bought uh, $350 billion in reserves every year. But since then, things have changed a lot. And in 2018, intervention was close to zero. So this is a bit too late and technically doesn't fit the definition. And Robin, the irony is they'll be happy with the fact that the Chinese did manipulate the currency stronger overnight. So let's just talk about what the Chinese yeah. are doing and what levers yeah. they're pulling to stabilize the currency. So let's talk about the, the big picture, first of all. When you have an exchange rate, right, part of that exchange rate function is to offset shocks that hit your country. And tariffs are a shock, a negative shock. So when you have a freely floating currency, and I, I don't want to say China has a freely floating currency, but it's getting closer to one, it is natural for that uh, currency to weaken in response to tariffs. And so that's what we saw at the start of this week. Uh, and as you said, uh, China has stepped in now yeah. to prevent the fix from going through seven. Robin, we got about nine questions, but I'll give you one and you nail it in your okay. recent essay, which is how big is the dollar long positioning? Let's start with China. John Plender in the FT, I thought was brilliant today. Yeah. How big is the dollar bet by the government of China? Well, um, so China has, because of its interventions, uh, built up a large uh, war chest of reserves. So at the peak, those reserves were about $4 trillion. Yeah. They have fallen significantly to around $3 trillion. So that's where we stand now. Is there a risk that China could use that strength to um, bully the president of the United States? I think... You know, it's a great question. And in a way, uh, what you're referring to is kind of game theory, right? These two sides are duking it out in a way, or it certainly seems like that. But both sides have a huge amount to lose. For the United States, it's the stock market, which really doesn't like these trade tensions. Yeah. And we saw that yesterday. And for China, there's always the risk of capital outflows starting again. So both sides have a strong incentive to de-escalate. What, what but what's the relative disincentive? I don't understand why China needs to do anything but go China silence. I mean, isn't their biggest strength is to just be quiet? Well, you know, in the end, uh, China's economy faces headwinds, right? As you as you know, and as you've, as you've covered uh, in many of your shows, there is a leverage overhang in China. Um, growth has been slowing. These tariffs are a bad thing. Um, and so there is an incentive to engage with the United States constructively. And for that, you have to talk. So you, you, you can't be silent. Um, and I think this currency move that we saw at the beginning of the week yesterday 
say, was a sign of exasperation, right? China has put up with multiple rounds of tariffs, done nothing. And I think here, I think it was a signal, enough is enough. John, to put this in perspective, it was exactly four standard deviation move yesterday, like they planned it. And now we're at about 2.8 standard deviations. Well, let's talk about that. It's not just, outrageous. This idea that they planned it and that they have a lot of control over what happens with this currency. Yes, overnight yep. they set the daily currency fix stronger. Yes, they plan yep. a sale of UN-denominated bonds in Hong Kong, which should flush out some of the shorts perhaps. Yep. But Robin, this idea, we, we seem to have this immense faith that they have control, that they can yep. smooth out the bumps. Yep. The market force is quite clearly leaning the wrong way. And, and Robin, I just wonder whether they can continue to smooth out the bumps in a reliable way. Yep. Okay, great question. So obviously, China is a huge economy, right? Second biggest economy in the world. Can you ever really fully control financial markets? And I think uh, the 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 truth is, China has capital controls, so it is not a fully convertible currency in the way that, for example, euro dollar is. And so the question is, how effective are those capital controls? And I think 2015, 2016, when markets were really yeah. worried about a devaluation, that was a test. But our sense is that today those capital controls are working pretty well. What is the president's best outcome, Robin Brooks? What is the, the to-do list for President Trump with all of his belief set to constructively move forward the dialogue? Look, I think the uh, basic issue on China is that uh, even though the headline current account surplus has fallen from 10% close to zero, our underlying analysis says that the overall trade surplus that China has is still big. So there is a legitimate trade imbalance, and I think the president and some of his um, officials in the administration have a somewhat legitimate issue. But obviously, you want to address this issue without upsetting the S&P and financial markets more broadly. So that's the fine line this administration is trying to walk. Robin, I want to wrap things up by talking about Europe with you just very quickly. I've been following your work on the continent. I think it's really interesting. A lot of people reach for the trade story and then just blame everything that's happening in Europe on the trade story. You've picked out some some other, and I hate this word, but I've got to use it, some other idiosyncratic reasons as to why oh, Europe you... is going through this slowdown. Do I have to put a, a dollar in the no, jar now? No, it's a now? drinking game. Do I have to, put, I have, to have a drink? It's pure agave <laughs> okay. tequila, but continue. Robin, go on. Just walk us through some of those some of those unique things that are happening in Europe at the moment. Well, um, one of the big uh, things people are obviously worried about is, you know, this trade war in the end uh, is about disrupting supply chains. And so that obviously causes anxiety in markets about global growth. And one of the main lightning rods in all of this has been German data, which have been incredibly weak. Now, the thing about Germany is it's obviously an exporter to the world, but it's been hit by some one-off stories. So Brexit is one. And then there's a big credit crunch underway in Turkey, and that's the other. And Germany exports a lot to both. Exports to China look good. So that's a positive sign for the global economy. Exports to the U.S. look very healthy. That's another positive sign. So that's why I've been saying on Twitter, for example, that overall, the global picture actually looks pretty okay. So Robin, when you look at Germany right now, you think that slowdown Mm -hmm. is mainly because of Brexit and a credit crunch in Turkey and not China? That's exactly right. It's certainly based on the export data. There's no sign that China is the reason for a slowdown in German exports. Hey, Robin, really, really great to get you on the program to break down some of these FX moves. Robin Brooks, the chief economist over at the Institute of International Finance. 
Uh, without question, Gary Schilling, someone like Sri Kumar, has been really strident about a lower rate regime, but no one has published on a low rate regime yeah. like Stephen Major. This email dropped in my inbox early this morning. We cut our end 2019 US 10-year Treasury and Bund yield forecast to 150 and negative 80 basis points, respectively. I'm very happy to say that Steve Major calls us now HSBC Managing Director and Global Head of Fixed Income Research. Joining us on the phone. Good morning to you, Steve. Morning, Jonathan. How are you? I'm very well. Let's just start with this call, shall we? The one that jumps out at me is not the Treasury one. It's the button call. Negative 80 basis points year-end. Just walk us through the dynamic that you and the team are thinking about, the framework for this bond market right now, Steve. The thing is, the bond market and the FX market is all about relatives. It's not about absolutes. So if I buy a bond today, I'm interested in total returns. Is that total return versus cash, which is zero, or total return versus a two-year, or versus a credit bond, or or whatever? So, look, 10-year yields today are minus 50. I I didn't think they'd get much lower than minus 40, to tell you the truth, but we're at minus 50, and we're now forecasting minus 80. Each one basis point is worth more than 10 cents. That doesn't sound like much, but... 50 basis points becomes 5% of total return. How much money do you think you would have made if you'd held the 100-year Austria this year? I think you're up about 20%, aren't you? No, 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 Jonathan. 70. Wow. 70%. Wow. Don't tell me, don't tell me bonds aren't sexy. Who would have thought That's the century bond the- would outperform that much, Thomas? 70% return. On an Austrian well, bond. this is Gary Schilling 101. Steve Major, explain the inertial force that will allow lower for longer. Is it just the desperation well, yeah. to own and to buy that makes all this happen? You know, there's a lot of theory on the negative rates, um, uh, the policy rate. And I think it was Goodfriend back in 2016 that released a paper at Jackson Hole. So it's about exactly three yeah. years ago. Is it, is it Marvin Goodfriend? And, and subsequently, there's been papers from the IMF and staff reports from the ECB all exploring that lower bound. In fact, even the Fed calls it the lower bound now, not the zero bound. My point is, the constraints that we saw a few years ago are slowly being peeled away. One of the constraints is cash, the existence of cash. The other constraint is the pain on banks. Um, the third one is this idea about whether it works or not. So I've looked at all three. First of all, in some countries, there is no cash. So you can forget that. America may have cash at the moment, but give it a few years. So the resistance in terms of the substitution into cash may not be there at some point in the future. It's not there in Sweden. It's not there in the Nordic countries. Um, you, may even, you may even have an exchange rate between cash and electronic money, just to, just to, just to encourage this move. As central banks explore the lower bound, then the short rate for bonds goes even lower. So if the ECB was at minus 150 or minus 200, then two-year shats are going to be around the same level. So what's the yield on the 10-year burn? Well, Steve, this is the argument that interests me this morning, and I look at your research, that this move starts from shorter maturities and extends up the curve. Yeah, yeah. Just walk us through why that dynamic is present right now, what we've learned from Japan and why we're about to see it a whole lot more in the United States and Germany. People need to grab the yield to get the total return. So so intuitively, your intuition would say that if they cut the rate, the curve would steepen. 
but you need to forget everything you've learned, yeah. especially uh, in the textbooks and universities. Nowhere in any of my Fabozzi textbooks or any fixed income textbook that I own is there a convex yield curve. Now, you'll, you'll know what that is. is a curve that bows in. So it's flat between zero and 10, then a bit steeper after 10 years. That's a convex curve. It's bowed mm -hmm. in. It's sucked, the, the belly is sucked in. All of your textbooks right. will have con concave yield curves. They'll talk about preferred habitat and investor preference, liquidity preference, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Well, that's not how it works. Not with negative but, rates. But, Steve, this is... This is critical. Yeah. You're with a major bank, and I, I say this with great respect. You're not going to go out and badmouth your competition. In the Steve Major milieu of the next 24 months, how do banks survive? How do they attain profitability or a diminished loss? Okay, so one of the other constraints, the second constraint I mentioned, I mentioned was bank profitability. So it's not good for earnings. We can, we can again study what happened in Japan over the last 30 years. There are now less banks in Japan. Actually, the big healthy city banks managed to profit from this because below zero, they were able to pass yields and lower rates onto their corporate customers. But the weaker banks don't do so well below zero. When, you, when you're cutting rates above zero, the weak banks do just great because credit constraints are loosened and they can lend more. But when you go below zero, the world changes. Below zero, everything is different. The weak banks don't do so well. The strong banks still keep their deposits. People don't want to keep their deposits in weak banks. So from Japan, we can yeah. learn a lot. Now, now, that's not a good story for the European banking system. But I'm not making any call or forecast here. I'm just observing what's happening. We, we, we can see it. Now, we welcome all of you this morning. Bloomberg Surveillance, John Farrow and Tom Keen, the special half hour. Steve Major with us with HSBC. And in a bit, Lawrence Summer will join as well as we give you complete coverage through the 30 minutes. John, jump in here. Steve, just looking at the ECB, is there a rate and the depot rate that underpins this call? And if so, what is the basic assumption on how low the depot rate will go at the ECB? Well, it, it's at minus 60 next. So bearing in mind, we've gone below zero, minus 10, 20, 30, 40, and minus 60. Each rate cut has supposed to have been the last. How many times have people gone on your show and said, that's it, one and done? Uh, the ECB would have wanted people to believe it's one and done. Don't forget, central banks, the ECB included, are well served by selling positivity and optimism. Next year, everything's going to be fine. That's what they tell us. That's what they have to tell us. They cannot go out there and say, oh, my word, it's just like Japan. We were wrong. So no you think we go from that. negative 40 <laughs> to negative 60, but I'm trying to understand yeah. what the effective lower bound is for the ECB now. If they move to oh, tiering, it, 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 does that just open lower. a whole new range of possibilities? It opens the trap door. That's, that's the point. We, we did a calculation three years ago. If the, if the ECB had used the same tiering system as the SNB, then approximately one half, in fact, in Switzerland, it's 40% of the reserves are, pay, are, are charged at the minimum rate. In, in, in Switzerland, it's minus 75 right. minimum policy rate. The Swiss 10-year trades at minus 85, right? Yeah. Just, to, just as a F, FYI. My point is that you get more efficiency and you can drop the policy right. rate even lower with the tiering. How does the Steve Major full faith in credit call come over to credit? 
to investment grade into high yield. Do they have the same lower uh-huh. yield regime? Now, now you now that's interesting. Again, you, you you tend to grab yield wherever you can. Now, with the investment grade, especially in Europe, you've got the threat of CSPP being restarted. That's the the purchase program for corporate bonds. So they, they, they never really ended it. There's plenty of capacity to restart that. They haven't even got to announce it. They just go out and buy them. That changes the story for credit globally, central banks hoovering up uh, corporates. Uh, high yields are interesting because, because here you get proper research and you get proper idiosyncratic risk. And I've got the greatest respect for the analysts in that area because they, these are the guys who are doing bottom-up research. So making general calls about high yield is difficult, Tom. Because you know each company is different, and it's you know it's about the cash flows and probabilities for, for each individual situation. But the but the thing is is that is that low for longer tends to suck people into higher yield and return prospects. I I, I look, Steve Major, at where we go from here. What is going to be the reaction of the bond world to a one fifty ten year? You walk into offices worldwide and explain the permanency of these lower yields, what will be the response of your clients and customers? Well, look, those that have um, been resisting it are going to suffer. And I think that resistance is futile, frankly. Um, Most of the calls I've made in my career, they tend not to be right immediately. The good calls have a bit of of durability. If I could right. call the market on a on a twenty four hour basis, I wouldn't be sitting here talking no, to you. I'd uh, be on the beach. Oh well, you can join Pharaoh on the beach <laughs> later this week. Steve Major, what's the new? I asked this question a week ago, and I thought it was like a joke, except now it's not a joke. What's the new actuarial assumption for long term assets? The people that listen to you, it was eight percent, then six percent. Are you under a four percent actuarial assumption for pension money? I don't know where they get these assumptions from, but surely it must be lower. If the coupon on a 100-year Austria is 2.1 and the yield is 0.8, that tells you that if they were to issue a fresh one, not tap an old one, the coupon wouldn't be any more than 1%. So that's that's telling you where the market is putting yields over the longer term. And it's not my opinion. It's the, it's the collective wisdom of the market. So what kind of actuarial assumption is making a number of four or five? I have no idea. I guess they've got some kind of mean reversion mindset. Now, now, yeah. uh, how many times in the last 30 years have people called the end of the bond market? How many people have come on your show and called higher yields? Well, they were looking for 265, and then we broke through that level and we came aggressively lower. Steve, we've got to leave it there. Fantastic to get caught up with you after a really interesting note published this morning by Steve Major and the HSBC team. Steve Major there, HSBC Managing Director and Global Head of Fixed Income Research on some big bond market calls. Right now, joining us after Mr. Major and the idea of a stagnation in yields is Lawrence Summers. He is a former Secretary of Treasury, uh, the 27th President of Harvard University, and of course, Larry Summers with a heritage of economics going back to his uncle, the laureate, Paul Samuelson. What an extraordinary day yesterday, Larry. You stopped the Twitter world with your two tweets out yesterday with a compare and contrast to 2009. What is the risk 
of a compare and contrast to the instabilities of 1998 that you lived at the Clinton administration. Are we heading for that level of instability? Well, of course, 2009 in some ways was much more serious uh, than, right. uh, 19, than 1998. I think we're in really quite uncharted territory with uh, the President of the United States actively um, denigrating the Federal Reserve and uh, asserting the need for the dollar to, dollar's value uh, to decline. This is a monetary experiment, uh, the likes of which we've not seen uh, in a long time. We don't know whether it will continue. The degree of drama in markets uh, yesterday suggests that its continuation is at least a possibility. And the rush into safe haven assets is a further cause for concern. So I'm not prepared to predict with confidence that we will have uh, a recession, but I am prepared to say that we're taking needless chances with our credibility, with uh, our economic health, and uh, that the risks are certainly well elevated relative to where they've been or where they need to be. Dovetail it and give us an update then on your arch theme of secular stagnation. Is what we're arguing about here, Professor Summers, the idea of a new terminal value of economic growth, a subdued terminal value for interest rates and inflation? Are we we getting ourselves to the summer's secular stagnation you've written about? I think we are globally, and I think the clearest way to see it is by looking at the behavior of long-term real interest rates. The U.S. 10-year real real yield is substantially higher than real yields in continental Europe, in the United Kingdom, in Canada, or in Japan. So we're the leader in terms of long-term real interest rates, and our long-term uh, real interest rate got mm-hmm. down pretty close to 10 basis points uh, yesterday. That's essentially zero. Well, that's telling right. you something about what the market thinks is necessary to get asset prices up or to get investment demand right. high enough to push economies uh, forward. If you just so join- yes, it's the essence of secular stagnation that to right. get even modest growth, you need an extraordinary amount of fuel put into the engine. And just just look at how low interest rates are. Look at how much lending is going on. Look at the magnitude of budget deficits. And I think it all suggests right. that secular stagnation is how the market's assessing things right now. I would suggest, Larry Summers, that no one knows about the yelling and screaming of strong-minded economic types at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue like you do. You lived it in three or four different jobs through three or four different crises. Whether people agree or disagree with you, there's a lot of emotion. What do you need to see from the people around this original president? What what would you like to see from free trader Lawrence Kudlow or Secretary Mnuchin and the crosshairs? What do they need to do in the coming hours and days? 
they need to be effective in private in persuading the president to restrain his intemperate uh, observations on sensitive financial matters. They need to protect their own credibility by not claiming that China is a manipulator after being told to do so by the president. Step one, that's politicizing what is usually a technical economic judgment. And then they need to be prudent in what they say. China's not manipulating its currency. China doesn't even have a significant trade surplus at this point. And if China's taking any artificial actions, they're to right. buy RMB, not to sell RMB. There's to control outflows of RMB, not to control inflows of RMB. So I think if the president restrained himself, if we focused on our really important priorities with China, matters like North Korea, rather than these mercantile uh, issues that obsess uh, the well, president, and if the uh, financial authorities themselves were very careful to husband their credibility, yeah. those would be the steps necessary for well, improvement. Larry, I've got about 14 more questions. I'd love to get a half hour with you in the coming weeks as your schedule uh, permits. Lawrence Summers, the former Secretary of Treasury, uh, as well the president of Harvard uh, University at this important moment. Now to the Chief Economist and Global Head of Economics and Morgan Stanley, Chetanaya, joining us on the phone. Good morning to you, Chetan. Good morning. Let's just talk about the designation currency manipulator, China. What does that actually mean and what are the next steps from Treasury now? Well, I think the next steps will essentially have to be uh, either having a bilateral conversation with the Chinese policymakers or having IMF actually be involved and again, involving with some discussion with the Chinese policymakers. So it's it's really like nothing immediately that the um, measures can be taken by the Chinese uh, policymakers or the U.S. policymakers. It's just more conversation. So this, this specific measure immediately does not have any uh, immediate impact on the economy. Wait on sentiment overnight, then sentiment snapped back pretty quickly as the PBOC strengthened the currency fix more than analysts expected. Coming into the Tuesday session, Chad, and with that in mind, how much encouragement should we be taking from the actions of the PRBOC in the last 24 hours? Well, we think that China would not have the interest to do use currency for the trade uh, dispute purposes because ultimately, remember that they have this uh, interest to ensure that foreign investors get into Chinese assets and they become a more effective reserve currency. So in that context, for them to actually use currency actively in context of trade dispute will be actually at the cross-purpose with that other big-picture objective. So we always felt that PBOC will try to just check volatility, mm -hmm. but not really use this aggressively uh, for trade dispute. And that's exactly what has come out with the overnight move uh, by the PBOC. Chechen, uh, uh, someone's argued that Stephen Roach invented modern market economics at Morgan Stanley. And certainly he invented an analysis of China that was very understanding 
of China's domestic needs. What does Morgan Stanley perceive as China's domestic needs right now? Well, I think the domestic need is uh, the big picture goal, that they want to become a high-income status country. And in that context, they want to have higher productivity growth and higher GDP growth to be able to get there. And uh, all the effort right. that we are seeing on technology front is just with that aspiration in mind. Do they steal that from us? Is it mercantile, as the president would suggest, that if they have that Steve Rochian goal, that they're going to take it from us? Well, I think that that was probably the issue in the past. But I think now we are seeing that uh, China is really at the forefront of some of the technologies, especially related to the telecom services that we have seen, and how that can actually um, ensure that in some of the other technologies like AI, they can be much faster and much ahead of everybody else. There's one uh, data point that I would like to highlight here. So if you look at the applications for patents that's filed by China, uh, they've really gone up significantly now, matching with a lot of the developed world uh, countries. So now it's uh, it's a different ball game. Uh, they're pretty much there themselves in the innovation space. Chet, and just to wrap things up, you've made the point over at Morgan Stanley that to really resolve some of the issues in the global economy, we need one or two things, either a resolution to the trade issues or much bigger stimulus coming from the Chinese authorities. Do you see signs of either happening anytime soon? Unfortunately not. Um, you know, we, we are seeing actually the trade dispute actually going in the other direction, as we have seen in the last few days. And from the Chinese policymakers' stimulus perspective, um, they have already put in a huge stimulus of $250 billion in place. And a large part of it this time has been in form of tax cuts. And to the extent to which corporate confidence is being impacted by this trade dispute, it's resulting into that, those tax cuts being saved. So, yeah, at, at this point of time, we don't have the Chinese government, again, going aggressively and doing public spending. So neither of those two options seem like in the near term possible. Hey, Chad, and great to get your thoughts this morning. A busy start to this week, that's for sure. Chad and I there, Morgan Stanley's chief economist and global head of economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.